I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to, I think, thank the committee for asking me to be here. Uh, I hope when I sit down, they're glad they asked me too. Uh, we'll have to know about that later on. Uh, Sonny said that he uh, enjoyed being up here, but he'd rather be out there. I'd just rather be out there. We're not going to talk about being up here. One of the things that y'all have taught me when I'm asked to share is to try to get Mary out of the way. And the only way I know to do that is to go to the God of my understanding. And if y'all will, in a few moments of silent meditation, uh, help me get Mary out of the way. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred I may bring love, that where there is wrong I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord I may bring harmony, that where there is error I may bring truth, that where there is doubt I may bring faith, that where there is despair I may bring hope, that where there are shadows I may bring light, that where there is sadness I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Like I said, that's the only way I know how to get Mary out of the way, and the deal I have with the God of my understanding is that I suit up and show up, and then he takes over. So, uh, <clears throat> God, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, the rest of this. Uh, the date of my sobriety is March the 12th, 1977, and my home group is the Keep It Simple group in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I tell you that because if you're ever in Greenville, you're certainly invited to attend the Keep It Simple group. I tell you my sobriety date because I used to think people with double-digit sobriety had it all together. Uh, I thought that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they were never perturbed, uh, that things just went along real smooth, and I was disappointed as Dickens when I found out that that's just not really the way it happens. It happens the way it is supposed to have happened for me. Um, and I'm very grateful for every drink I ever had, for every harm I ever caused, for every pain I ever felt. Because without that combination, I would not be here tonight. I would not be here tonight unless I had gone to every meeting that I've attended, listened to every sponsor I listened to, not listened to every sponsor I didn't listen to, and have not sought your help in finding a God of my understanding. The first drink I ever had was in a controlled situation. Uh, I had a sip from a rum cola that my father drank. I never saw him drink more than one or two and never saw him under the, the influence. Uh, we were a pretty close family. I had one sister that was five years older than I. Uh, and my father was with the State Highway Department um, in Alabama, and we lived in various places uh, all over the state of Alabama. But the first drink I had outside of a controlled situation was when I was 16 years old. And we were all at the skating rink in a little town called Alexander City, Alabama. 
and that's about halfway between Columbus and Birmingham. And it was a dry county. Uh, but the skating rink was the approved place to be as teenagers. Our parents let us go there. Um, parents never went to find out what went on there. But uh, we were all there. And I have always wanted to learn things, but I never wanted to be taught. You know, Winston Churchill once said, I'm always eager to learn, but I don't ever want to be taught. Being taught sounded difficult. You know, I wanted to learn things and I wanted to know things 15 minutes before it was necessary for me to learn and know those things. I did not want to have to go through the process. Uh, there's been a lot of times in my life that I did not want to go through the process. Uh, but living and sobriety have been a process. They've all taken time. But we were at the skating rink, and there was a group of, of people out there that night that were skating backwards and, and having a good time and laughing and carrying on. And I went up to kind of the ringleader of this crowd, you know, and I said, Gus, how about teaching me how to skate backwards and dance on skates? He said, okay, but we got to go out the car first. I said, I beg your pardon, I can't skate in the car. He said, I know, but come on, let's go out to the car. And uh, I went out the car with him, and he said, uh, I want you to turn this up and, and have a little drink of this. And it was Calvert's Reserve. I remember it well. Because uh, we didn't have any cups or straws or nothing, you know. He said, just I said, now, Gus, I don't know about this. I've heard about girls that get drunk. I, I just, I don't think I want to do this. He said, have a little sip. It won't hurt you. Then we'll go back in, and I'll teach you how to skate. So I very dainty took a little sip, you know. And we went back inside. But with that little sip, the magic of alcohol started working. I learned how to skate backwards that night. I learned how to dance on skates. I fell down and went boom. I did not care. I wasn't with the in crowd. I was doing the thing I wanted to do. And I thought it was wonderful. And that one little sip lasted all night long. I guess. Because when we started to go home, Gus said, come on, I'll take you home. And I said, oh, I came with these other people, you know. They said, yes, come on, we're leaving. I said, bye. Even then, with the one little slip, I knew I had to stay close to the source of alcohol. Before I go much further talking about Gus, I guess I need to tell you that Gus was the son of the local bootlegger. Um, and contrary to everything, the truth, as long as I knew Gus, I believed anything Gus told me. You know, Gus was tall and good-looking and suave and sophisticated. Gus was also later to die an aged, broken, hurting alcoholic at 42. But that night I didn't know that. And so we went back out the car, and he said, Now I want you to turn this up and have another drink. I said, Gus, I've already told you, I don't want to get drunk. I've heard about girls that get drunk. I don't want to do that. Now remember, I believe Gus. He said, Take this bottle and turn it up and take three or four swallows at one time and you won't get drunk. <laughs> I 
I turned up that bottle and I took three or four swallows. And people, I want y'all to know I got drunk. <laughs> I got so drunk I couldn't find my fanny with both hands. <laughs> and finally Gus took me home. It was way after curfew. My mother always had a curfew for me. And I don't know why, because I never made the first one, I don't think. But she always had this curfew. And we had this long sidewalk from the street to the, to the porch. And Gus just kind of poured me out. And um, I looked at that sidewalk, and I thought I never would get to the, to the front porch. Just thought I never would get there. And I got to the door, and it was locked. My mother had locked me out because it was way past curfew. And in my intelligent, drunk thinking, I said, I know how to remedy this. I sat down in a rocking chair on the front porch and started rocking as hard as I could and singing to the top of my voice. <laughs> Lights went on next door and across the street and stuff, and it was not long before my mother opened the door and let me in. But my affair with alcohol began that night, and it continued for the next 28 years. Uh, it changed names several times. It went from Calvert's Reserve to J&B to some pills, back to some bourbon, and Mr. Glenmore. But I did not care what I used from that point on, as long as I keep, could keep the delusion alive that I was okay, and I wasn't hurting anybody but myself, that it was only my business what I did. Um, up until that point, I had belonged to the country club and had belonged to GAs and, and went, did Sunday school stuff and all the little church activities. As soon as I began my affair with alcohol, all those nice girl things went away. I started running with the wildest crowd in Alexander City, Alabama. And, and that crowd's uh, motto or whatever was, was to, to enjoy life, neatly spiked with alcohol any way they could. Up until that point, I'd been an A student. After that point, I was not an A student. Um, Gus was part of that crowd. Gus had a brother. I said, Gus, introduce me to your brother. And Gus introduced me to his brother. And I fell madly in love with that brother right after I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> but Jean and I were married. And as I said, their father was the local bootlegger. Had a nightclub in Dry County. There was the slot machines. There was the illegal gambling. And there was certainly a lot of drinking and dancing and carrying on that went on. Uh, the sheriff of that particular county was paid off. What he didn't carry away in cash, uh, he drank up. And I saw nothing wrong with this. Uh, we would go uh, out of town a lot. And I never questioned why we went out of town, because I always got to go shopping. And it never dawned on me how this bonded liquor got to the nightclub or to the house that my, where my father-in-law and now my husband and his brother were selling it. 
I didn't know how, you know. It was just there when I wanted to drink. Uh, if I wanted to play poker, my father-in-law staked me. He told me one night that if I couldn't break him with the amount of money that he had given me to come back, he'd give me some more, and I thought this was wonderful. Um, but we were in Birmingham one day, and I've always loved fast cars. God, I thought if God didn't put 120 miles an hour on the speedometer, that meant he didn't want me to go that fast. But if it was there, I was supposed to go that fast. And I love fast cars. Fast cars, fast men, boats, I mean, you know, anything with the speed. And I loved it. And we were coming back from Birmingham one day. We'd been shopping. And I was driving. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and that's at an Alabama State Highway Patrol. I said, I think I'll outrun these boys. <laughs> and I romped down on it. And my father-in-law said, will you please slow this car down? You've got about... 15 to 20 cases of liquor in this car. I said, do what? <laughs> I want to show y'all something. <laughs> Have you ever tried to drive when your foot was doing one of those numbers? <laughs> <laughs> we got home, but the cop never stopped me. Found out later he was part of the payroll system. But Speedy didn't tell me that then. I never drove another car to or from Birmingham that I didn't check out to find out what was in it. If it didn't come from Pazitz, honey, it didn't go in my car. Because <sighs> I, I already could see me in jail, you know. My sponsor was telling me today that, that women don't get wrinkles in their faces just from looking through the Venetian blinds trying to find their alcoholics. Al-Anons didn't get wrinkles. It was just the Venetian blind effect. Well, I had the bar effect. You know, I could just see myself in jail. It wasn't long after that that Gene and I moved to Texas. Um, and Texas was just a lot bigger place to get drunk in and to act crazy in and to drink in. I had a son by that time. Um, we lived in, in uh, a right nice nice little apartment in, there in Dallas. Um, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to keep house. I didn't know how to cook. Uh, I'd try to cook and I'd set the kitchen on fire. And I found out that right down the street there was this place that had hamburgers this big, so I figured that was a nutritional meal. Why try to, you know, keep the fire department busy? Let's, let's, let's just leave the cooking to, to the hamburger place. Uh, I did not know how to take care of my son. Uh, I put him in a, in a daycare center, and I went to work. Um, and I enjoyed the working, but pretty soon, because I did not know how to take care of my son, he got ill. And um, I took him to the doctor, and the doctor told me certain things to do for him. But he kept getting sicker, and uh, I didn't know what to do. All I knew how to do with anything was to drink at it. You know, I didn't know how to be responsible. I was like 18 years old. I had this, this wife and this husband and this apartment and this job, 
and I didn't know from nothing. All I knew to do was to drink. And if it didn't fix it, at least I didn't have to think about it. But this son kept getting sicker and sicker. And finally, my mother-in-law and father-in-law came out there, and they got that son, and they took him back to Alabama with them. Because if they had not, he wouldn't have lived much longer. He had double pneumonia and the measles. And this was in like 1951, 52, before they had the penicillin and the treatment today that they've got for pneumonia and measles. Because of not knowing and not trying to find out and not seeking a different kind of life than what I was living, I almost lost that son. I must have been about two when he was born because he just turned 40. And I thought, oh my God, I've got a 40-year-old son. Jeff, that's awful. But he grew up. He's the one that's 40 today. And, and after they, my father-in-law and uh, mother-in-law took him back to Alabama, we stayed out in Texas for a little while longer and, and um, finally moved back to Alabama. Uh, my father-in-law was ill at that time. Uh, he had cirrhosis of the liver because, you see, he was an alcoholic. I just thought he was a fun-loving guy that liked to drink a lot. You know, I did not even then look at the devastation around him and around his family and around us. Because if I had looked at his devastation, I would have had to look at mine. And I chose not to. Gene and I hadn't been back in Alabama very long uh, before one word led to another. And uh, I decided um, that it was time that that I left Alabama. Uh, and uh, I was, at that particular point, six months pregnant with our second son. And I arrived on my father's doorstep about two, one, between 1.30 and 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, six months pregnant with one son and the other two-year-old in tow, and says, Daddy, I've come home. Isn't it wonderful? And my daddy didn't say very much. My mother said an awful lot. <laughs> Things like responsibility, decency, proper behavior. God, I hated those words. Still do. But Jean and I got a divorce. And my 21st birthday I celebrated with a 42-year-old man. The only reason I celebrated with that man is because he could buy me anything I wanted and take me anywhere I wanted to go. And he bought me all the liquor I wanted to drink and asked no questions. I had a live-in housekeeper who took care of my children. She did not know where I was a lot of the time. If I wasn't at work or I wasn't at home, she didn't know where I was. If my sons got hurt, my, my housekeeper had to call my parents to come do something for them because she doesn't know where I was. They, my children did not have a responsible mother. And then came January the 1st, 1957. Tennessee and Oklahoma were playing in the Sugar Bowl game in New Orleans. Before that game that was over, this man, my father, that I thought hung the sun and the moon and the stars and that could do no wrong, was dead of a massive heart attack. And I thought my world had crumbled. This is the man who had come by my house 
not two weeks before that and found me whining because I didn't have any shoes. He said, what do you mean you don't have any shoes? I said, I don't have any shoes to wear. He's fixing to go out. And he was a tall, compassionate, loving man. He said, well, let's go look in your closet and see what you can find. The man pulled 27 pairs of shoes out of my closet and says, what's wrong with these? I don't want those. That's not what I want because I didn't know what I wanted. I was drinking alcoholically. I was not taking care of my children. I was mistreating them. If they questioned what I was doing, I told them it was none of their business. If they found it strange that that there were people around in the morning that I didn't know their name from the night before, I told them they ought to shut their mouth and tend to their own business. You know? Uh, my father had found a gas bill at my house where two months were on there, you know, like um, the gas company does. And uh, I used to say I didn't know why there were two months on there. But to be honest, there were probably two months on there because I hadn't paid the bill. But from that day till the day he died, I never got a gas bill and never got a light bill. The housekeep and the nursery were paid. The rent was paid. January the 1st, 1957, that man was dead of a massive heart attack. I filed bankruptcy because I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know how to take care of my boys. I didn't know how to do anything. My mother was devastated and tried to reinforce upon me one more time how to lead a decent, normal life for my children. I told her to tend to her own business that I would live the way that I chose to live. She never liked my father anyway. I hurt her every way that I could. I hurt other people every way that I could because nobody could make things right for me. Nobody could make my father back come back to life. Nobody could make alcohol not affect me. Nobody could help not me not be the way that I was. I thought, and I was 24 years old at the time. I thought, that's, you know, that's the way it is. That's what life is going to be about. So I decided if that's what life was going to be about, and life was full of hurt and heartache and pain and sorrow, that I was going to be the one dealing out the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the sorrow. I decided to do things my way. I ran wild as I wanted to run, you know. One more time, my children, uh, only by the grace of God, nothing bad happened to them when they were growing up. They got involved in sports. And the youngest one came to me one day and says, Mama, don't come to my game today, Mama. Mama, I'll tell them you have to work. Just don't show up today. Mama, don't you know what they're saying about you? That you go to my games drunk. Don't you know that, Mama? Well, if that's the way you feel, I just won't go to your damned old games anymore. You just go have yourself a good time and I'll do what I want to. Because I was so involved in the rage and the, the, the self-pity and the denial and the alcoholism 
that I could not keep from hurting my children. I could not keep from doing things to them that loving parents don't do to their children. Um, they wanted to go back to Ellick City uh, to their grandmothers for the summer. And uh, I thought that was a good place for them to go, something for them to do. And then I wouldn't have to worry about them all summer. So they went back uh, to their grandmothers and spent the summer there. By the time school season came around, they wanted to stay down there because they were getting loving, caring attention down there. They weren't being made to feel the way that I made my children feel. Being the loving, caring mother that I was, I certainly could not allow my children to live someplace that I didn't live. So I quit my job. These things were getting kind of sticky around it anyway. So I quit my job and I moved back to Alexander City, Alabama. And I took up right where I had moved, left off when I moved away from there. I started running with the Royal Crowd. I did a lot of things in those next three years of which I'm grossly ashamed. I continued to be an adulterer. I became a thief. I continued to lie. I continued to hurt people. I continued to strike out at people. And their only wrong had been that they could not make things right for me. But things were supposed to be right for me. You know, if you had my problems, you'd drink too. You'd run around too. You'd do the things that I did if you had my problems. Well, before long, well, after about three years, those wives of those guys were getting kind of suspicious. The people that I had stolen from were kind of looking around with a kind of a funny look. So I decided that the thing for me to do and you, you understood how well I've made decisions all these years. I decided the thing for me to do was to go back to Atlanta, take my children and go back to Atlanta where career opportunities were better and, and things would really be nice. Uh, that was the day the town of Alexander City, Alabama uh, adopted as their theme song, Thank God and Greyhound, She's Gone. <laughs> Because when I left there, I, I had used all the funds I had. And so I left on a bus with my, I left my children there till I could get an apartment, and I went back to Atlanta. Uh, I got an apartment, I found a liquor store, and I found a hairdresser, pretty much in that order. <laughs> I had to have a place to live. I had to know where the liquor store was, and I had to find the hairdresser. Because if I could keep my hair fixed and the outside looking okay, then I could continue the game that I was okay. I could be okay on the outside at the same time I was rotten to the core on the inside. But I found this hairdresser, and the first time he fixed my hair, he said, uh, <clears throat> Do you ever take a drink? I said, Occasionally, you know, I said, well, let's go out to dinner sometime. I said, is tonight too soon? 
But see, I had found Bill. And um, Bill and I were to share each other's lives for the next 23, 24 years. Uh, some good and some bad. Uh, the, the thing we had most in common. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous cured one of those and age cured the other one. <laughs> but I had found... I had, hi, Rebecca. I had, I had... I had found Bill and, and uh, Bill was, was so convenient. I could blame everything on Bill. If we didn't have enough money, it was all his fault. Uh, if... Uh, the house wasn't cleaned up. It was all his fault. Uh, if the children didn't have proper clothes to go to school, it was all his fault. Um, if I did not do the things that I was supposed to do and be a decent mother, it was all his fault. Bill was very convenient for me to blame. Um, and I did not do the things a mother does. I continued to do it. One time... It was one of those winters in Atlanta when it got like three degrees. And because my priorities were all screwed up, and Bill's priorities were screwed up because he drank as much or more than I did, and he too was an alcoholic. And we had these two children. I sent my children to school, and a television station saw that they had no jackets and no decent shoes. And they called and wanted to know if it would be all right if they bought my children clothes. Sure, but just don't you try to tell me how to raise my children. I'm doing just fine. They're all right. Leave us alone. Because I was so deep into denial about what I was doing, not only to my children, but to myself and to the people around me, I could not admit the things that I was doing. Sometimes there wasn't enough food in the house. And uh, then along came Michael. Uh, and Michael was a brown-eyed, blonde-headed child that was a joy and a pleasure the day he was born. And he remains so until this day. But this is a child who was to be 12 years old before he had sober parents. And during those 12 years, you know, you people that are, y'all that are from alcoholic homes kind of know how it is. You move a lot. The bills are never paid. There's never enough of anything. Certainly not love and care and concern. It's just one hell after another, one crisis after another. And these things happened. And my older boys got the hell out of Dodge as fast as they could, as soon as they could graduate from high school, as soon as they didn't have to worry about Mama showing up drunk at their ball games, as soon as they didn't have to worry about anything, they got out of, and they, they left. They went in the Army. They got away so they could make something nice and decent of their lives. But I had this, this young boy at home. He got afraid. He developed migraine headaches. He stayed in his room a lot because he was afraid. He heard the fights and he heard the hell racing. And he also 
was subjected to the fact that I didn't understand and the meaning of the word faithful to marriage vows was not in my vocabulary. And I had to make sure that my husband knew it every time because if it he couldn't make things right for me the way I wanted things made right for me, then I would see that he was hurting just as bad as I was. I'm not proud of any of these things I've told y'all tonight. And I speak for nobody else in Alcoholics Anonymous but Mary. But these are my experiences. This is what happened to me. It wasn't long after... Oh, the boys left home and stuff that that my mother developed cancer. And she and I had not gotten along from, from the time I told her what she had done to my father in 57 to about 75 when she became dependent. As soon as she became dependent on me and I could be in control of things in her life rather than trying to listen to her tell me what decency and morals were, then she and I began to get along better. Um, the last year of her life, she was in a nursing care facility at DeKalb General, and I would go by there every day to commiserate with her about her pain. For my pain, as soon as I left the hospital every night, I'd get a Coke, and I'd conveniently spill half of it before I got to my car, because before that car left the parking lot, I was having a drink to take care of my pain. See, I didn't care anything about that woman's pain. The night that she quietly went to make, meet her maker, March the 5th of 77, I felt nothing but relief. I didn't have to go to the hospital anymore. I didn't have to take care of her. I did not have to delay my drinking time. I did not have to be anything but what I wanted to be then. From the day she died for the next seven days was one continuous round of, of pills and booze. The doctor thought I was upset about my mother that night and she sent me a big tall bottle of Blue Valium. And if you take those with straight liquor, you don't tend to remember too much about what goes on. And for the next several, several days, I didn't know what was going on. I was told that I called my sister over to, to um, my house and told her she had exactly Twelve hours to get the things that my mother had left her out of my house. If they were not out in twelve hours, they would be out on the curb, and I would see that the garbage people came and picked them up. And she had done nothing except be the dutiful daughter to my mother that I'd always wanted to be and didn't have the guts and the courage and the decency to be that. So I had to hurt her. Oh. And then Saturday, the 12th of March of 77, I couldn't drink anymore that day. For the first time in my life, I could not drink anymore. Another drink would not go down. Bill continued to drink until Monday. And on Monday, another drink would not go down for him. And he called the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and asked for help for himself. And I told him I thought that was a fine thing for him to do that he was a hopeless, helpless alcoholic and he needed some help. <laughs> that if he would just straighten up and do right and not drink, then surely I wouldn't. That I would be the perfect epitome of the perfect wife and mother 
if he would just straighten up his act. Bill started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he'd been going about 10 days or so when he insisted that I attend a meeting with him, that I face the fact that I had a problem with alcohol. Bill got loud when he insisted, you know. So to shut him up, I said, okay, I'll go to that silly little meeting with you if you'll just shut up. Uh, we got to the meeting at a quarter of nine. Bill told me it started at 8.30. It had started at 8 o'clock. But we were there. And Don P. was chairing the meeting that night, and it was long old decab room, and it, it had sofas and chairs all around it and stuff, you know, and it was full, and there were two seats way back in the back, and Ms. Almond goes sashaying in and goes to this back thing, and, and Don stops the meeting. And Bill says, I'm Bill, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, I'm Mary, I'm with him. <laughs> and uh, Don said, Mary, are you alcoholic? And all of a sudden, there was a hush and a quiet and a stillness in that room. And I said, yes, I'm alcoholic. And I followed that statement up with, and that's the first time I've ever said that out loud. I want y'all to know, everybody in that room started applauding. I thought I was going to die. I said, my God, they must need members in this place really bad. That I have said I was alcoholic, and they are plotting my shame and disgrace. What kind of group of folks is this? <sighs> but before that meeting was over, I heard people talking about the way that they felt a way that Mary hadn't felt in a long, long time. And I wish I could stand up here tonight and tell y'all, even hearing that, and even knowing the desperateness of the situation, I wish I could tell y'all I wanted what y'all had that night. I wanted to know what y'all knew about staying sober. So when Bill came home drunk, I could tell him what he needed to do. And I could drink like I wanted to drink. So they said, there's another meeting right down the street from you. And I thought, got two in a little bitty area like that. So I started going to the Tilson group because I wanted to find out exactly what I needed to know. So when that big boy came home drunk, I could tell him, this is what you're supposed to do. And I started going that meeting. First meeting I went to at Tilson, it was, you know, in the church. I was by myself, and I didn't know what was going on, you know. Don had said something about closed and open meetings, and I didn't know nothing about that either. But anyhow, they told me to go to this church. and There was a glass door, and I looked in there, there was a bunch of people. Looked like a bunch of missionaries to me, you know, and I thought, oh, God, <coughs> excuse me, I think I'm in the wrong place. And Frank Gideon, God bless him, looked at me and he said, you look like a drunk, come on in and sit down, you found us. <laughs> oh, what am I going to 
do. Everybody knows me. You know? They don't know my name, but they tell me I'm one of them. How do they recognize this? And I'd go look in the mirror. If I got some kind of spots or something, you know, it's, it's real strange. They reminded me. Uh, Twelve months later, how bitter I had been that night and how upset I was. But I wasn't on my first birthday because, you see, in that 12 months, the magic of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous had begun to work. Hugh M. gave me a big book, and he says, right here, the steps... I want you to look at him, go home, work him. That was on Monday night. I took him, packed the book on Wednesday night. I said, okay, that's done now, what? <laughs> and he says, I don't think so. And I wanted to stomp his toes. Because he knew how to do something I didn't know how to do. He knew how to live sober. He knew how to have joy and happiness in his life. He wasn't running crazy and scared and messed up like I was. He wasn't having to drink. And I read those steps and I thought, you know, ain't no big deal to that. And I kept going to meetings and, and the first Altoona Roundup, the first Altoona Roundup was held the August after I came in the program in March. And I was asked to attend. My nose got real long. I said, no, thank you. I don't need to be around a bunch of drunks. Anything like this can be gotten over in at least six months. And I was coming up on six months. So I wouldn't come up here. See, I was still afraid of y'all. I just wouldn't admit it. And I knew I was getting sicker and sicker. And I didn't know what to do. Y'all told me to do things that I didn't know how to, I didn't, I thought surely with my super intelligence that I sat there and kept my mouth shut, I'd understand what y'all knew. Y'all said, put it into action. I don't know what the hell to do. How are you going to put something into action? You know? And a man who wasn't then, but is today one of my sponsors, one night says, come on, let's go get a cup of coffee. I said, don't have time to go get coffee. I have to help Michael with his homework. He said, you haven't helped Michael with his homework. He knows more than you do. I said, well, if you really want to know the truth, I've got to mop the kitchen floor. He said, I've been to your house. You ain't mopped no kitchen floors lately either. <laughs> he said, we're going for a cup of coffee. We went to the Waffle House at the corner of Glenwood and Columbia Drive. Clarence, I was by there the other day, and they've torn that thing down. Broke my heart. I thought they at least ought to put a monument there or something, you know. Because we sat there with a cup of coffee that night. And one cup of coffee lasted about five hours. Because this man, through love and the care and concern of another alcoholic, said, if you don't accept the fact that you're alcoholic, as well as admit it, you're going to get drunk. If you don't understand that the God of your understanding can restore you to sanity, you're going to get drunk. If you don't make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand Him, you're going to get drunk. And if you don't put out on paper as good as you are and as bad as you are in a moral inventory, you're going to get drunk. 
And if you don't clean away some of that wreckage of your past by sharing it with God and another human being, you're going to get drunk. And if you don't ask God for help with those character defects, you're going to get drunk. And if you don't ask God for help with your shortcomings, you're going to get drunk. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do any of these things. He said, shut up, I ain't through. <laughs> he said, you've got to make a list of all those people you've harmed. And you've got to be willing to make amends to them all. And then you've got to go make direct amends to those people. Except when to do so would injure them and others. You can't go telling everything you know just to get it off your back. And you've got to start cleaning up on your act on a daily basis. If you do wrong on today, you better clean it up for tomorrow or you're going to get drunk. And you better start praying to God after prayer and meditation, asking only for knowledge of His will for you. And then asking for the power to carry it out because if you don't, you're going to get drunk. And then, after all that, just maybe you'll be qualified to give away some of what you've just worked for by doing 12-step work. I said, I don't know how to do any of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. He said, suit up and show up, baby. We'll walk with you. We'll show you what we have done to begin recovery from the disease of alcoholism. And boy, did he show me. He made me go to step meetings. Thank God he made me go to step meetings. But every time I turned around, he made me go to step meetings. He made me get involved with the telephone answering service in Atlanta. He made me get involved within a group. And I got just as happy as a dead pig in the sunshine, you know. It, everything was just so wonderful. All the, all the outside stuff was good, you know. There was still a lot going on in my marriage that wasn't good. I still would, could not talk to females because look how cleaned up and nice and neat they were. Surely they had never done the things that I had done. Surely their insides had never been like my insides. They could not trust me with their lipstick perfume of husbands and by God I wasn't trusting them with none of mine. I know about you women. You could talk to the guys and let a little tear trickle, you know, and they'd pat you on the back and sympathize. You try that with a woman and she'll tell you you're full of it. You better start getting honest and work your program the way you're supposed to. <laughs> Got tough there. And being real comfortable and real settled in, and, you know, I, I just... I guess at that point, I was content to live that way. And I was four and a half years sober. And God moved me to Greenville, South Carolina. I never once in my life up until that point ever wanted to live in Greenville, South Carolina. I went up there to see if I was going to move up there to see if I wanted to transfer up there. <clears throat> and I called the answering service 
And I said, I'd like to have an alcoholic call me so I can get directions to a meeting. You fixing to get drunk? I said, no, I'm not, but I'd like to talk to another alcoholic. We don't do things that way. So I thought, well. And later on that night, my youngest son was with me. And um, I said, I'm going to give these folks in Greenville one more chance to have me in one of their AA meetings. (laughs) (laughs) So I called Alcoholics Anonymous again, and I got some good answers this time. But I, I did not. I cried for months and weeks. Clarence told me after I'd been in Greenville two or three years that the state of Georgia had finally appropriated enough money or made up enough money to take the ruts out of 85 North where I dug my heels in and they had dragged me up there. (laughs) But I had to go to Greenville because I had to learn how to be dependent upon a God of my understanding. I had to learn how to talk to females. I had to learn how to turn that sick marriage loose. I had to learn how to be happy, joyous, and free. I had to learn how to be happy in sobriety. Free, not a captive of the disease anymore. The first year I was up there, the first Altoona, I moved up there in July. The Altoona Roundup in August, I came back down here. I felt so sorry for myself. It was just pitiful. They gave out the colored chips wrong. They said amen after the serenity prayer. They even said the Lord's Prayer wrong. God, I didn't know how in the world anybody could stay sober in Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> and, and Ernie H. was here. Helen R. was here. And Clarence was here. And I was going to tell them what a sad tale it was for me to be up there in Greenville trying to, trying to stay sober, how difficult it was. And they chewed my butt all weekend. And they told me if I started looking for sobriety instead of all the differences, I just might find it. You know? And I limped back to Greenville on Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Couldn't sit down. God knows, you know. But I got involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in Greenville. And it has been something that has made my life a way that I never thought possible for Mary. That son who did not have sober parents until he was 12 years old, that was so afraid and hid out in his room is a DJ on one of the rock stations in Greenville and he gets on that microphone and he talks some trash. <laughs> but that's because of Alateen and Al-Anon and because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous told him, son, even your mama can lead a decent, God-filled life if she works the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've got people that don't let me do things by myself. I have people in Greenville who are so close to me who give up time off like Rebecca has this weekend to come down here to ride with me to keep me. I ran a red light in the city of Cartersville last night and she almost died. I stopped. 
But then this other car over there stopped, and I went on, and my light was still red. And if there's a policeman here, I'm sorry, but I did it. But you know, it's people like that that love and they care for you, and they walk with you in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And every single promise that you ever told me would happen in my life if I worked the program has come true for me. Every single one of them. You told me an awful lot in the past 14 years. An awful lot. You told me that God would constantly disclose more to me as I went along. You told me that this book of Alcoholics Anonymous was meant to be suggestive only. But you also added you better take the suggestions. You told me that you knew only a little. And that as God disclosed more and more to us that all I had to do was ask him in the morning and thank him at night. And ask him what I could do to help the man or the woman who's still suffering. And you told me that the answers would come if my own house was in order. But you also told me I couldn't give away something I didn't have. You told me to see that my relationship with God was right and great and wonderful things would happen. You haven't told me a single lie. Not the first one. You told me that that was one of the great facts for we members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you asked so little. You told me to abandon myself to God as I understood God, to clean away the wreckage of my past and give and, and join y'all in your hands, hands to hands, hearts to hearts, sharing to sharing. You asked me to give away what I have found here. And that's what I try to do today. I try to suit up and show up and share the me that's me, as good as it is and as bad as it is, with the you, the shield. I try not to be an outskirts member. I try to be an involved member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you told me if I did all this, you promised me, you promised me, that you would be with me every step of the way, physically and in the spirit. And that as I trudge this happy road of destiny, I would meet many of Thank you. I love you. Thank you, Mary, for sharing your hope with us tonight.